Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. The major objectives of a sound manpower policy are, first, to select and train men of the highest fighting efficiency needed for our armed forces. On December 9, 1941, one day after President Roosevelt declared war against the Empire of Japan in response to the attack on Pearl Harbor, the NAACP sent a telegram to the U.S. Secretary of the Navy, requesting that African Americans be accepted into the branch in positions other than as messmen. The request was refused. A letter to the president one week later was passed along to the Fair Employment Practices Committee. Again, the Navy refused. They told me, wait a minute, you're a Sakai. You're a Jap. We don't want Japs in the Navy. Get the hell out of here. My brother and two of his friends joined the Navy. My father was upset because of Afro-American background. The Navy could only accept them as mess attendants. Welcome to Service, Stories of Hunger and War, a production from iHeartRadio and me, your host, Jacqueline Raposo. As we're starting to absorb on this show, meeting the demands of World War II involved all citizens in one capacity or another. Still, That discussion with African-American civil rights leader A. Philip Randolph highlights how African-Americans were not feeling welcome in the military or in war production departments at this time. Segregation in all branches of the armed forces greatly affected the future path of these young men. Today, we sit with Dr. William Walker, an African-American man who joined the Navy in 1943. As we heard in our last episode with George Hardy, who joined the Air Corps around the same time, The Navy wasn't the most welcoming branch when the war started. Now, supply positions were vital, but pay grades varied widely in the Navy for enlisted men. An apprentice seaman made $50 a month, whereas a chief petty officer could make $138. 
the equivalent of a restaurant dishwasher today even having a chance at becoming a line cook or a chef. Fortunately, President Roosevelt responded to the Navy's 1941 refusal to the NAACP with a little pushback. I think that with all the Navy activities, the Navy Bureau of Navigation might find something that colored enlistees could do in addition to the rating of messmen, Roosevelt said. Slowly but surely, more positions became open to these men, and the Navy started to open ratings to black sailors in 1942. William's story captures the breadth of this scenario. One of 160,000 black World War II sailors, We'll hear how William's advancement in the service changed the trajectory of his family line. But that doesn't mean all was smooth sailing. And so now, from his home in Cleveland, Ohio, let's slow and sit and spend some time with William Walker. My name is William Walker. And I was a first-class petty officer in the United States Navy. My family came to Cleveland. I was five years old in 1930. It was very eventful growing up. I had a brother and a sister. My brother was four years older than I, and my sister was born in 32. I don't recall my father, but my mother had remarried and had a very good relationship with my mother and my stepfather. My mother would always encourage me and talk about education, the out of trouble and this sort of thing, because there was a lot of vandalism in the neighborhood, in our age group in particular. I loved school because I wanted to graduate. That was my drive, my inspiration. I wanted to graduate. I wanted to get out of the environment that I was in. And I wanted my mother to be proud of me. I had this regular job that I would go down to the market and I would meet the truckers coming in with food and I would carry patrons' bags and get paid a quarter. I also would pick up glass and different types of debris and take them to the salvage shop and pick up a dollar or two. My father would work down at the market. He was befriended by a butcher, and he would bring some leftover food home. My mother would cook it, and we ate a variety of foods that people nowadays never heard of, like chicken feet. We were never on welfare, but during that period, they would give out grapefruit and some kind of cereal, government supplying this. And I can recall my friends asking for some rations that we didn't need or wouldn't use. But we survived. My mother, she was a wonderful cook. Wonderful. We survived. My neighbors were Mexican, Italian, and Jewish. And we had a little group. I was probably eight because I was in elementary school. And we went to the YMCA as a group. They went in, and I was denied permission to enter the YMCA. There was nothing they could do about it. There was nothing I could do about it. It was very, very hurtful. I sulked. I cried. I told my mother, we discussed it. There was just nothing we could do about it at that time. She told me that this was life and that we would have to endure these type of incidents and to buck up and be prepared. 
And from that day on, I have tried to. That was my first confrontation with racism. And I never, never will forget it. In some communities, employers dislike to employ women. In others, they are reluctant to hire Negroes. In still others, older men are not wanted. We can no longer afford to indulge such prejudices or practices. Every citizen... My brother couldn't enlist because of a physical disability, and he worked pouring steel in a steel mill. And he told me stories of how blacks were treated in a steel mill. We had a neighbor on the staff of Case Western Reserve University. I told him I wanted to be in the medical field. I couldn't believe that he wouldn't encourage me to say something encouraging, but he didn't. And when I was at East Technical High School, it's all boys, 90% Caucasian. I took college prep course and also majored in pattern making. But my instructor told me, frankly, Bill, you'll never get a job as a pattern maker outside of school. All of these, no positive reinforcement. Everything was negative. Everything was cautious. I wanted to better myself. I wanted to progress. And that's why I volunteered for the Navy. It was a way out. It was a way out for me. I went to Chicago in October 43. I was there about six weeks at Great Lakes. The educational officer took a liking to me. He says, I'm going to send you to Hampton Institute in Virginia. I spent about six months. When I went in, I was just a seaman. And when I came out of Hampton Institute, I was a third class. From there, I went to Pensacola, Florida as a diesel engineer. And I was in charge of a group of, of course, Negro sailors. We were all confined in segregated quarters. When we went into town, we went into town segregated. And the USO was the only thing that we could go to during that period. It was a rough period, but I continued to concentrate on what I had to do. I was in charge of the PT rescue team, had a crew of four or five, and we rescued Navy fighters that were being trained. They would crash into the water and we would get the bodies or rescue them. I was promoted to second class. That was almost unheard of. I didn't know very much about the uh, 99th black pilots, but there were no other second-class black sailors at that period other than in the galleys. It was aberration, really. There was a lot of jealousy and resentment because I was in charge of about 90 black sailors, and the majority of them were older than I was. During that period, there was a horrific incident where they had black sailors unloading ammunition and loading the ammunition, and it blew up and killed over a hundred of them. From that day on, black sailors didn't want to do that kind of work. You can't blame them. I was 20 years old, and I was in charge of these people, but I said that I was going to persevere, and I was going to survive, and I was going to reach whatever rating I could get. When I shipped out, they made me first class. 
first-class petty officer in charge of all these people. After the break? You ate what you could get and be thankful for what you were getting. Stay with us. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand, it's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at zerofoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products, it's about the ethos that we embody rugged, resilient, and timeless. You're listening to Service, stories of hunger and war from iHeartRadio. I'm Jacqueline Raposo, and we're here with William Walker, now a Chief Petty Officer First Class in the Navy. His role is about to shift as he deploys overseas and starts to manage his ship's supply holds. In newspapers nationwide, the Navy recruited sailors by boasting of the fabulous food they would find in this branch. In our first episode, Pat D'Ambrosio mentioned that because his family didn't have a freezer, they canned vegetables for the winter. 85% of American households had refrigerators during this time. But it wasn't until after the war that frozen foods and freezer technology started to become mainstream. Conversely, Navy ships had galley kitchens comparable to a first-class hotel kitchen, with the finest of refrigeration capabilities, mechanical dough mixers, bread cutters, and frozen foods poured into the holds. Yet, in 1943, Navy stations started to report serious food shortages, with beef, poultry, and potatoes especially short in some locations. Butter was a common steal from Navy supplies stateside. The world was short of food because of this war. And so it becomes a common thread this season for our veterans to reflect on food less as enjoyment and more as an aspect of their survival. Let's now return with William to late 1944 and move into 1945 as he boards ship 
and heads to the Pacific Theater. I went to Leyte Gulf. That's where they had some of the biggest battles in the Pacific, where aircraft carriers, planes, and Japanese kamikazes were all involved. Fortunately, wasn't involved directly in those battles. We were directly attacked, but we were always in environments where we could be. We would come through and supply whatever ship were left from the battle with food and ammunition. That was our job. If you know anything about how food is distributed in the Navy, all this stuff is in a hole. And you have a crew that works in the hole, you have a crew that lowers the food into the hole, and then you have a crew that takes the food to the storage. My job was to supervise all three of these areas. The food that we got, other than the spam, we would look at the food and we were told that what we saw were raisins. If they were actually bugs, then the flour that came overseas to us. And this is what we had to eat. This is survival. We would get a shipload coming in of maybe some eggs or whatever. It was a big deal. About once every other week or so, we were allocated a beer. A beer. Those things were special rations. You ate what you could get and be thankful for what you were getting. We were basically be on an island unloading and back on the ship unloading, then on an island. It was a job. I enjoyed doing what I was doing because I got a lot of respect, not only from some of the blacks and some of the whites, but also some of the officers. Of course, if you're supplying food, they're very grateful. <laughs> I don't care if it's a battleship or a canoe. If you have beer that you can fly to them, you were their allies. But as soon as those conditions are alleviated, they're back into the same old routine of who you are, where you are, and what you can expect. The Navy was island hopping. Rete and Iwo Jima, Okinawa, and all these people were really relying on us to supply them. I was amazed at how humanity, how people survived under conditions that they did. Unsanitary conditions, completely unsanitary. They had chickens or pigs running in and out of the house and under the house. Gangrene and foot sores, they paid the supreme price. They were friendly and they were gracious that we were there to serve them. There's nothing wrong with that. We were proud of our contribution to what we were doing. I miss my mother's cooking, period. Lima beans and stew, and she could make different meals out of the chicken. She was a marvelous cook. She was a marvelous cook. My mother died while I was in service. I was in Lake Tate Gulf. We were cautiously apprehensive. We didn't know whether we were going to have to go to Japan or not. Of course, we didn't want to go there. 
Truman had said that if we had to invade Japan, a million soldiers would lose their lives. They were prepared to die. They were prepared to not surrender. They had been bombed and firebombed and every type of weapon used on them, and they still said no. They still said no. We were on pins and needles. We didn't know what to expect. My fellow Americans, the thoughts and hopes of all America, indeed of all the civilized world, are centered tonight on the battleship Missouri. There, on that small piece of American soil, anchored in Tokyo Harbor, the Japanese have just officially laid down their arms. They have signed terms of unconditional surrender. I returned right after they dropped the bomb. It was great. I came home, I elected to take the GI Bill. I was gonna go to college and I was gonna set the world on fire. My stepfather died. We had lost the home that I was living in when I went into service, even with my mother gone. My brother and I were gonna survive. The two of us were gonna make it in this world. I had accumulated a little money in the service that I had saved. We had some very good times <laughs> together. We went to restaurants and so forth. All seafood, always seafood. When I was in school and I had nowhere to go, my brother found a way for me to have family with him and his wife. They would send me cook meals, carry me over until the next check came in. My brother was my soul. He was in my corner all the way. He was my mother and my brother. I went to Ohio State University in 1946. I went to the movie and I had to sit in the bleachers. And I couldn't believe, after what all I had witnessed in my life, that I had to sit in the bleachers. It really, it really affected me. And uh, I joined the uh, African uh, Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity. We uh, went to a restaurant and we went into the restaurant to eat. It was uh, about 13 of us. And sat at the counter, there was two policemen sitting at the counter too. We ordered our food, we paid for our food and we left a tip. And as we walked out, the door opened and all the tips that the waitresses had received, they threw them out into the street. That was how I was met after I got out of the service in Columbus, Ohio in 1946. I entered dental school. I was in a class of two and 120, two black. After two years, I was called a doctor, and I had my cubicle, and the patient walked in, Caucasian. She looked at me, and she said, oh, no. Turned around and walked out in my junior year. I was working 10 hours a night as a mail carrier. When I was being interviewed, the supervisor had my credentials in front of him. He said, if it was up to me, you wouldn't get this job. Just like that. 
I had this instructor, and I was sitting at the back of the class. He said, this is what we do, and this is what we expect in a procedure. And if it doesn't work, it's just another nigger in a wood pile. Now, mind you now, I'm in a class, 120. They looked at me and see what I was going to do, my reaction. I had to respond. I caught him before he went out the door. I told him I didn't appreciate his remark. He looked at me and he says, it's just a colloquial lesson. I had friends that were in dental school that committed suicide. I thought about all of this later in my life. The only thing that sustained me was my experiences that I got out of the Navy. So many professionals, children, were in the service. I had the opportunity to see doctors, lawyers, educators, and achievers. I had never seen these people before. They welcomed me and encouraged me to continue my life. I was not a freshman when I entered the freshman class at Ohio State University. I was a mature individual who had commanded a regiment almost of individuals. And so I knew what my potential was. That helped me to survive and instill the ability to tell my kids to survive. I was very fortunate. But for every fortunate experience that I can relate to you, there are a hundred unfortunate experiences. It wasn't until the 1960s that African Americans began commanding ships, submarines, and shore establishments, and not until 1974 that the Navy published any sort of affirmative action plan. But back in 1944, 12 commissioned officers and one warrant officer became known as the Golden 13, the first African American Navy men with rank who would pave the way for many more to come. William might have become one of these officers. He became Dr. William Walker instead. He met his future wife, Janet Bivens, a captain in the Air Force, and they had two children, Leslie and Bill. Leslie has called William's time in the service his great leveler. And you can head to our Facebook and Instagram, we're at Service Podcast, and servicepodcast.org to hear her explain more about that, as well as find photos, articles, and transcriptions relating to this episode. But William remains scarred by the racism he received when he returned home from his service. We're going to start to explore why our veterans do or do not talk about their service experiences and what communities are doing to help in an episode called Dad, I Can't Talk About It. So stay tuned for that. But before we go, I want to leave you with one more clip. Because at times, William seemed uninterested in detailing food specifically. But there was something young Bill wanted to make sure we knew about his father's legacy when it comes to food in their family now. Could you explain to them, because I know how you feel about food. As a result of you growing up in the Great Depression, talk about how much food is in this house right now. Overflowing. Why is that? Because I said I would never have to worry about food again in my life. Okay? Never again. Never, ever. Never. In our next episode, we go back to Europe with Harold Bud Long, an engineer in the Air Corps, who traveled all over laying airstrips and taking bomb sites out of planes. Always on the move, he ate nothing but K-rations and C-rations for almost three years. Service is a production of iHeartRadio. This episode was produced and edited by me, Jacqueline Raposo. 
Ben Rosenblatt voiced FDR for us. And you can hear Ben and me on our old Heritage Radio Network podcast, Love Bites. Misty Bodiger assisted with this episode, and Elizabeth Emery was our on-site engineer with William. Our supervising producer is Gabrielle Collins. Our executive producer is Christopher Hasiotis. Thank you for listening. And thank you, those who are serving and those who have served. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. Roller coaster. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand. It's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless.